This is American Dreams, the program where we interview thought leaders and entrepreneurs and bring their ideas to you in real world context. Welcome to today's show. I'm here visiting here today with Randy Barron. Randy, welcome. Thank you, Alan. I'm glad to be here. So, Randy, for uh, the investors, you have a remarkable uh, background and set of accomplishments as a portfolio manager, but can you take us up on your timeline and what brought you to where you are today? Well, I don't know how deep you want to go. My very first job was as King Kong in the Empire State Building, which not many people know. Um, but yeah, I for 25 years, I've been a stock picker, which is what I do. And uh, now I run an international kind of best ideas all over the globe uh, portfolio for a firm called Pinnacle Associates. So Pinnacle Associates um, was founded in 1984. Uh, we are all employee owned with no debt and a real history of uh, small mid cap picking. So we're kind of looking for best ideas anywhere in the world under $5 billion. And, you know, what, what's really interesting about our approach is that we're stock pickers. We don't do shorting. We don't do derivatives. We don't do leverage. It is plain vanilla. Um, and so the things that become our North Star are things like quality of management, for example. And so my background, about two and a half decades ago, I started um, after kind of the traditional JP Morgan everything route uh, with, a, with a stock picker named Eric Gabelli and kind of came from that school where we really did a kind of Graham Dodd, Buffett-style approach. And I was a telecom and media uh, analyst, kind of just sourcing cash flows and looking for all of that. And then about, I don't know, five or seven years ago, I came to the realization, and you're very kind to point out the performance kind of followed with that, that um, disruption and kind of new form platforms have a real space. So if you take that traditional value paradigm and shift it onto growth or growth at a reasonable price, um, you could find some really, really interesting and transformative ideas. And um, that's kind of been the arc of the narrative. You know, not everyone gets to that number one position. Uh, how would you characterize your approach versus how others approach things when you're trying to identify disruptive technology and value-driven inside stocks? I'm, I'm reminded of the Churchill quote, you know, never give up, never give up, never give up. It's like saying, and, it, and that's the truth. The work is the time that goes into it. And uh, we're fortunate because of our investor base that the arc of time that we look at um, is at least three to five years. But someone once gave me a great definition of infinity. They said, infinity is a place that's so far away if it were any farther, it wouldn't really matter, which is to say I'm graded monthly, I'm graded quarterly, absolutely. But if the arc of time that you're approaching a prospective investment in, um, there's one that I'm sure we'll talk about, Amorous, that I literally think of in a 20 to 30 year time frame. And so, you know, how do we find those ideas is we do a lot of uh, truffle hounding. Our nose is in the dirt, we're digging it out and we do a lot of time. And, and the way that I prefer to invest is if I find a management team and a concept that intrigues me, I'll do some work on it and I'll put a little bit of money in. And then over time, quarters, years, we'll find out, are you the type of management or the type of person 
really that can deliver on what you're setting out uh, with goals and expectations and all of this. Um, so we have a, for example, we were the first U.S. investor in a, a U.K. listed stock called Renalytics. The stock is up probably five or six times in the last two and a half years. And everyone always comes, oh, they say, Alan, you know, you're a great stock picker. This thing is up. But they don't realize that our average cost basis is probably only up two to two and a half. Because again, it just seems from a fiduciary perspective, if you put a little in, they do well. You put a little more, they do well. Like that to me seems um, prudent. And, you know, we're not in, often we're not in the same foxhole. So how do I tell if you can handle the stress, if you can deliver, if COVID-19 happens, that you can still execute? And one of the kind of feathers in my own cap that I, I'm really uh, happy with is that if I look at the portfolio in December of 19, so pre-COVID to today, it's 80 to 85% the same names. I mean, we didn't run or fly. We had these relationships with managers. We had the arc of time. We understood what they were doing. And that allows... From a management perspective, they love shareholders like that because I'm not lending out my shares to short. I'm not calling you with red letter words unless you do something really dumb. You know, maybe we're going to check in once a month or once a quarter to have a dialogue. Um, but I want to leave you to run the business. And that's kind of how we've been able to frame that out. A little bit. For the investors coming in, which are typically high net worth individuals and family offices, um, what time frame do you ask of? In other words, you don't want someone popping in and out of your fund. You want to have some time given. So typically, what is the what are the terms by which you'll accept the money? Is there a minimum that comes in, and um, and then what do you ask from them? No, it's it's the right question. And in fact, when we were structuring and then restructuring and thinking about the best way to do it. Um, you know, early on in that process, I made a decision that I would never put my own capital into something with a lockup. It just doesn't feel right to me. I, I know from the uh, financial architecture perspective why you would want a lockup. It makes sense. But again, we're not dealing in distressed assets or things that are illiquid or things that I'm going to need three months to get out of. So for us, we have monthly liquidity, which I think is a real um, boon. And, you know, for us, it's a conversation. So for example, Alan, let's say you're a high net worth guy, you and I sit down and talk. It's not certain that we're the right fit, right? And so it's not as much about saying, all right, you need to commit for two years. No, it's do you understand what we're doing here? Do you uh, respond to it almost on a visceral level such that when there are the vicissitudes of Mr. Market a la COVID-19, you know, I didn't get one call for redemption in that time frame. And I think that speaks to the investor base understanding what we're looking for. And, and by the way, I should also stress, because it's small mid cap, the things that we're owning are not Verizon or Comcast or these behemoths where the Goldman Sachs analyst is going to have a team of 12 people that will always be able to do channel checks and door checks and know it better than, you know, me and my little team of three people will be able to. Uh, we want to be on the other side of it to find those smaller companies that are call it 200, 500 million, a billion dollars at the start and are going to grow to five or 10 or 20 billion, uh, which we've been lucky to find some of those. And I think our investors appreciate that that's a differentiated process and therefore they're willing to tolerate some volatility. I mean, we concentrate in our top ideas. So by definition, we're volatile, but we define risk which we're always mitigating 
as the chance of permanent capital loss. So in other words, if we say, you know what, even though the stock is priced for an event, like a chapter 11 event, we think the market's wrong for a whole host of reasons. And then we're willing to wait it out and kind of see it through. And our investors understand. Is that. there a certain percentage of the portfolio that's allocated into venture capital or in recent years, we've had these special purpose acquisition corporations or SPACs come in? So we are all public equity. So that's the first thing I would say. There's nothing, uh, there's no private equity. There's no mezzanine financing. There's, I mean, it's again, what I said at the outset, it's kind of boring. My wife always laughs at like plain vanilla stock thinking. That's what this is. But uh, what we do do sometimes because we have these relationships with management is we'll be invited to participate in a, in a pipe or a private investment in a, in a public equity. Uh, and the pipes that we do are there's a, a public equity already out there. We know the management. They want us to participate. They'll come and say, hey, listen, will you and your investors be willing to uh, to come and to give some money at a discount to the public price in something that there's no lockup on the trades immediately, just so we can have you even more embedded in our shareholder base? Uh, the, the funny thing on SPACs, and by the way, in my career, this is the third or fourth iteration of the blank check company. It's always called something different. Um, you know, I, I always laugh because they can give projections. You know this phrase, anyone can make a PowerPoint? There's no SEC regulation. There's no prospectus that you need to go and vet. So it's like, you know, ah, you know, I can kind of paint some things and some pictures and there's no real accountability to it. Uh, what I do find interesting of late is that some of the SPACs have had their, the pipe portion of that not funding. And that's kind of been a newer trend that's happening. But again, we're not going to get caught up in, in any of those uh, shenanigans, if you will. And we're looking for really solid, uh, defensible things where I can pull up a 10Q or a 10K and I can say, hey, this is how you're reporting. Let's drill through it. And by the way, that also speaks to why, despite the fact that we're global managers, another thing that uh, your listeners should be aware of is that we're not, we're very underweight Asia. So J Japan is 34% of the global small cap benchmark. That's a legacy of the 80s when Japan was kind of the thriving um, economy that it was at the time. And, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to uh, get in touch with Japanese companies, to visit with Japanese managements, because again, management is, that's our North Star. Well, you know, we hired analysts that would read Japanese and, and at the end of the day, what we realized is we couldn't access the financials in a defensible way. In other words, I couldn't look at the source data and say, okay, this is what cash flow is, right? We couldn't get access to management in a, in a way that would make us comfortable. And so over time, I mentioned Churchill before, we've kind of evolved to what he would call the Commonwealth countries, where a lot of the places that we invest today are Canada, South Africa, the UK, Australia, places that share a cultural norm, share language. And that's ended up proving to be really prescient because, and here's, here's kind of the end of the arc, there are today a lot of US-based managements, US-based companies that are opting to access the capital markets, for example, in the, in the United Kingdom. They may be too small to do a NASDAQ listing, but they're not too small to do a AIM, which is the London secondary market listing. And the thing I like about uh, the fact that these US managers are doing that is A, when you list in the UK, no leverage allowed. 
Think about that. In the U.S., you could have something levered three to five times easily at IPO. Uh, here, these companies had to have net cash. So if and when, I mean, gravity affects everything, when the market comes down, I'd rather be in the stock that has a net cash balance sheet than the thing that's levered three to five times, just all else equal. Um, but I also like the fact that when you look at like, just to continue the UK example, the FTSE versus the S&P, they're very different indexes, right? So like the fang heavy S&P, people are always shocked. We talk about the FTSE, 2% of the FTSE, which is the UK market, is tech. 2%. Think about that versus 30 plus percent in the US. And, and therefore, when you look at the divergence of performance, it's the reason that we're finding all these opportunities abroad because the tech-led U.S. recovery from COVID disruption was amazing. Zoom existed before, but no one really used it. Um, that kind of disruption exists a lot of other places in the world, but they have not gotten the valuation re-rating outside of the U.S. So I'm buying comparable companies that you'd find in the U.S., comparable managements for maybe four to five multiple points cheaper. I mean, that is jaw-dropping. And then over time, when you ask about how do these returns work, over time, you know, that there's a great country song where you start your fence post, I'll start mine, and we'll meet in the middle. You're very hands-on with these uh, the CEOs and managers. And, and how many companies do you prefer to work with inside of a, a fund? So a um, couple of things. I'm going to approach it uh, from the investor perspective and then the company, because one of the things that we also do from an investor point of view, is we do a lot of separately managed accounts. Uh, so an investor come to us with, with as little as two hundred fifty or three hundred thousand dollars, but specific needs. You know, for example, social responsible investing is so uh, the topic du jour. But not everyone, if you look at the classic ESG, not everyone looks at environment and social and governance the same. You may care a ton about water safety, right? I may care about gender diversity in the board. So we can kind of really cater uh, specifically to people. Uh, obviously, the, the funds themselves have a higher threshold to come into. Uh, our concentrated approach yields about 40 positions in a, in, a fully diversified, um, in a fully diversified strategy. The reason we did that is when we did a traditional kind of bell curve, 70 to 80 names, we realized what was hurting performance at that time was the tail. In other words, it wasn't position one or two or three. It was position 65, 70, 72 that were dragging down in combination cumulatively. And so, um, so for us, we really like to be high conviction investors. And so therefore, our top 10 ideas could be you know, 60 to 70% of a portfolio in aggregate. I mean, that's very concentrated. Average size investment going in is what? Uh, average size, probably about three, three and a half percent of the portfolio going in. However, uh, some of these names I've mentioned, like Renalytics and Amaris, uh, those are 10% positions. And certain clients call us and say, hey, we've heard, and by the way, and not to link to other, but there's a, if you type Randy Barron Amaris, there's a great podcast that I did that for an hour and a half shows how the sausage is made in stock picking. And there are people that come to us uh, knowing our knowledge of it and say, hey, listen, we want, we think Amaris is, Amazon in 1993, we want that to be 15%, 20% client directed, in which case we'll go higher. We don't have a, a ceiling above which we won't go. Um, our ceilings are more on the opposite side, which is we don't really do emerging markets for the same reason I kind of talked about Japan. I remember looking at a, I mentioned at the outset, I was a telecom guy and I used to look at Argentine 
telecoms. And I was so impressed because you could buy these things for two times cash flow, right? And in the US, if you could buy a telephone company for two times cash flow, you don't even go look at it. You just buy it, right? You go. Well, but here's the kind of philosophical question. If you're buying it at two times cash flow, but the Argentine peso is devaluing at 80 to 100% a year, what are you really paying in real terms? And by the way, trick, that's a trick question. There's no answer because we don't know where it's going to stop inflating. And so for us, we realized we didn't really need a ton of emerging markets exposure to get kind of that tip of the spear type return. We can find that just by being in disruptive industries. So it's been a, it's been an interesting ride. Yeah. So entry fees, if an individual comes and says, Hey, Randy, I'd like you to manage an individual portfolio for me. And, uh, but what is your, uh, what is your benchmark or requirement for, for you to take that on as a client? How much, how much do they need to have? Well, as I mentioned, in the separately managed accounts, a quarter million, 250,000, that's where we start at. Obviously, we go a lot higher than that. You mentioned 7.4 billion uh, as a firm overall. Um, but I, I don't want to bury the lead. For us, it's about philosophy. If you're someone who likes traditional stock picking in a time-proven way that we kind of have a bottom-up approach that works over time, and you're not going to run for the doors if there's a downturn, then, you know, that's kind of a conversation that that's the type of investor that we look, we look for long-term partners in the business. Like if I'm owning a stake in a business, I view that as I'm owning a minority share of a business. I want to therefore be invested with partners who understand that and want to own fractional shares in a business that's going to compound intrinsically over time. Uh, the, the best kind of anecdote I ever got on this was Jeff Bezos didn't become Jeff Bezos by tracking the S&P. So while we do mark to a benchmark, absolutely, it's how we get graded. That's how we get categorized as the top global small cap manager in the world. That's, that's wonderful. Truthfully, that's not really what matters to me. What matters is absolute return, kind of absolute mitigation, and the fact that we're going to keep looking for these types of companies in all types of different sectors that can deliver over time. In today's market, uh, we see a lot about SPACs in the news, and uh, which has piqued the interest of some of the investors. Uh, what is your take on it, and um, how do you approach an investment with the SPAC in mind? Sure. So um, obviously, at our asset size, we get pitched a lot of SPACs. Um, I do think in many ways, this has been the year of the SPAC. I don't know if that's the Chinese kind of actual year, but it feels like that in many ways. Um, as we said before, you know, SPACs have been around for blank check companies have been around for a long time, which is what a SPAC is. Um, it feels in many ways that we are at the tail end, maybe the sixth or seventh or eighth inning of that iteration. You know, this year, of course, we had uh, Shaquille O'Neal and, you know, all these other kind of names, just put their names on something that would then get priced up. Um, what's interesting is that SPACs do allow, uh, a path to value. So I mentioned earlier, Amaris, AMRS, it's one of our top holdings. I'm, we're known for this name. Well, Amaris is in a space called synthetic biology. Fine. Amaris is direct comparable Ginkgo symbol DNA. It just listed three weeks ago. Um, Ginkgo came public via the largest SPAC in history, 17 and a half billion dollars. And it's funny, the valuation, I mean, by the way, trading today at 140 times revenue, which you kind of roll your eyes and say nothing in this world to trade 140 times revenue, except, and here's, here's the narrative that totally ties in to what I said before about anyone can make a PowerPoint. 
Uh, New York Stock Exchange, simple DNA given. Uh, three weeks ago, Friday, they list. And on the uh, tapestry, I don't know what the word is, but you know, in the front of the stock exchange, they put up the logo and the symbol and they have a tapestry, for lack of a better term. It's a picture of a Tyrannosaurus Rex saying, we can make anything. And I literally turned to someone. I said, if they can make dinosaurs, it's worth 140 times revenue, right? The point is, SPACs allow to capture a zeitgeist, this moment that we can capture a narrative, we can encapsulate it, and we can try and monetize it. Um, I think there will always be ways to access the capital markets. I mentioned UK. Uh, for example, no one's picked up on the fact that US companies are increasingly going to the UK because, and I didn't mention this before, uh, there's no quarterly filing requirements. So think about this. If you're a small company, call it $10 million in revenue, right, per year starting out, um, and you don't have to pay because you don't have two quarterly cycles of filings, lawyer, accountant, audit fees, you're saving about $750,000 to a million dollars a year. On $10 million revenue, that ain't nothing, right? And so the point is, you're always going to see the capital markets evolving in a way that they're going to try and eke out value in an efficient way. And I think SPACs serve that purpose. I'm not anti-SPAC. We haven't really done them per se because I just, they're not SEC audited. I can't really go in and check the numbers against something. But the concept of accessing the capital markets, I think is prudent and works over time. So Randy, it's been a pleasure to have you with us today. For people wanting more information on Pinnacle Associates, how would they go about that? Yeah, they could send an email. My email is rbaron, R-B-A-R-O-N, at Pinnacle, P Pinnacle's P-I-N-N-A-C-L-E hyphen N-Y dot com. Been busy here today with Randy Barron of Pinnacle Associates. Randy, thank you. Thanks, Alan. Have a great day. 